From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast. Tensions between Temple University and the North Philadelphia community reached a boiling point, prompting city council to withdraw support for a proposed football stadium. We do not want that stadium in that block. Because we had a lot of uncertainty. Is it pretty much tabled right now until Temple? I don't think Temple? the community has had, a, a, the broader community has had a meaningful opportunity to weigh in. The university now has an uphill battle to regain ground, but all sides say they're willing to do or not do to patch things up. Their one-minute comedy sketches have gone viral. A lot of my comedy come from real life. The unconventional method used by a Strawberry Mansion father-son team that's drawing cackles and the impact it's making on communities of color. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast and feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the proposed Temple University football stadium. Temple is planning to build a 35,000-seat, $120 million facility in the heart of north-central Philadelphia. The building would span from Broad and Norris to 16th and Burks and would require the closing of 15th Street for two blocks. But tension between the university has been building and came to a head last week when residents shouted down Temple University President Richard Ingram. In separate meeting, leaders from a coalition of groups working to tank the project made it clear residents will block the stadium at all costs. And say no! And say no to stadium! This week, Council President Daryl Clark told the Temple News he would not support the project unless the community shifted its position. So is the stadium project dead? Can Temple repair its relationship with the community? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Reverend Bill Moore of the No Deal Coalition, a group of organizations including the Stadium Stompers that are opposed to the stadium. We also have Valerie Harrison, Senior Advisor to President Richard Englert on issues of diversity. She also runs the university's EEOC office. And finally, we have Judith Robinson, a North Central Philadelphia community resident who runs the registered community organization that represents the 32nd Ward in the heart of the area impacted by the proposed stadium. So welcome to Flashpoint, everyone. Thank Thank you. Thank you. So, Valerie, I want to start with you and just ask you, what is the current status of this proposal? For the past 17 months, Cherry, um, We have had meetings with the community, small group meetings, though, that have been specific to the stadium project. So Temple administrators have met with a relatively small group, probably about 10 long-term residents, Mm -hmm. including present and former black captains and other leaders. Um, They pretty much have been meeting monthly. Um, And so I've attended a number of those meetings. The neighbor's input has been invaluable um, to Temple and has informed much of the planning and the direction. Additional meetings have been held with clergy, have been held with principals of the local schools and with other leaders. However, we have heard the message that those conversations need to be broader. And so that really was the impetus for the March 6, 2018 town hall meeting that proved not to really be the most effective opportunity for long-term residents to give and receive information. And so what we're doing now is we're continuing the conversation and working with neighbors to determine what is the right number of persons, what is the right venue, 
so that it gives those most impacted by um, the proposal a meaningful opportunity to participate. Reverend Moore, tell me what the position of the folks that you represent and and how their participation in these discussions. Sure. What this represents for us is a continuum of disrespect for the neighbors, notwithstanding the fact that there have been conversations. I've been a part of those conversations Mm -hmm. with this current president and with the past president, as well as with the chairman of the board uh, and a number of members of the board. But it's primarily been two-way conversation, but one-way listening and hearing what the concerns of the neighbors are. And basically, we do not feel that a 35,000-seat stadium fits in a residential block. Have you heard the full proposal, Ms. Judith, and, and what's your, what, what is your thought on it? I have seen some renderings and some details. But what we're looking for, because we're the registered community organization that would deal with the land use, we're looking for the feasibility study, we're looking for the traffic study and parking study so that we could ascertain how this will affect the community, such as traffic, major problem as it is now, and especially when there's a concert at the Leocora Center or some graduation, is much congestion. Uh, in addition, there's always issues of parking in the surrounding community. So this is ongoing, whether mm-hmm. it is a concert or not. We just have a problem with parking. We have permit parking on some blocks. Uh, One of my um, fellow committee persons told me that she had to walk several blocks away from her home, even with permit parking, because after 8 p.m., there is a major increase in people coming back home, students from out of school, Mm -hmm. and there's a major problem. In addition, we have problems with student behavior, ongoing Ongoing. These are issues that are ongoing. So I have encouraged Temple to deal with some of these issues prior to meeting to extend the proposal for a stadium. People have criticized Temple because of this lack of communication and there have been ongoing problems. Explain like so there there would be this stadium in the middle of this neighborhood. How does Temple view dealing with some of the issues that both Judith raised here and that Reverend Moore raised the fact that this is this is where people have been living for generations. Absolutely. Um, and, and we have, again, prior, even prior to the 17 months that I just talked about, um, there were ongoing meetings and dialogue with community members about quality of life issues. Um, certainly, um, we have been aware of the trash issue. And so we've been working with neighbors to try to work with the city to increase, at Temple's expense, um, the number of trash pickups. In the community meetings, we've also talked about a special services district, and the community members have helped us to think about what a special services district would look like in terms of additional security as well as as cleanup. We've also worked with liquor liquor control enforcement um, to, to, to beef up our efforts around the disruptive parties on the weekend. We understand, and we have added a tremendous amount of additional resources to deal with both the, the drinking and the partying in the community on Thursday and Friday and Saturday nights. Um, And so the community has worked with us in that. We have um, imposed stricter sanctions on students in terms of our disciplinary process for behavior that is disruptive Mm -hmm. to the community. One thing that our Temple student government has helped us to think through is adding information in our curriculum. I teach a course, for example, it's called Understanding North Philly, to help students who are not from this area, who come into this area, to understand this community, to understand some of the causes of concentrated poverty, of underfunded schools, but the rich legacy and history of this community so that they value it in the way that they value their own homes. 
And so Temple Student Government has been on the front end of that, and we've been working to infuse more of that information into curriculum so that we can change behavior. Mm -hmm. And so we are well aware of that, and we have worked with our police. We've worked with city police, again, with liquor control enforcement, and with others in an effort to to really um, deal with this issue of disruptive parties and that kind of thing. The stadium, and so, for example, in the stadium project, the plan includes moving all tailgating out of the neighborhood onto main campus in mm-hmm. buildings on campus or in property on campus so that we don't have that same problem eight additional days of of, of the year. Because um, I want to ask games. you about yes. that because there, the proposal was just to use the stadium during these seven eight home games, games yes. eight home games. A lot of mm-hmm. people are like, really, y'all going to spend all these millions and millions and millions of dollars and only use the stadium for these? It just doesn't sound... Logical. Well, it's a multi-purpose facility in the sense that there are there's also re- retail space, and so we've been talking to the community about what kind of retail space is desirable or would you want in that space. There would also be other uses in terms of research and classrooms um, and that kind of thing. So it's not just a stadium, but, but it's third, really a that's a perfect facility. venue for big concerts. I mean, I just I've never mm-hmm. seen a stadium only be used for one yep, purpose. Absolutely. I think if I can jump in on this, I think one of the things the president said in the five things he said in the presentation that. Uh, yeah, and I read that presentation, make, right. yes. Uh, he talked about the seven games, mm-hmm. uh, but he also uh, talked about the fact that there may be a championship game and other kinds of venues so that there are some things that are said, but there are a lot of things that are unsaid. Once this stadium, if it if it manages to get built, that will happen simply because it's it. All of us have been students, and students would do what students would do. The bottom line is they have not controlled uh, the students' behavior in the neighborhood. So, If I could expand the discussion really beyond the two or three blocks beyond the stadium, because there is a residual impact of this uh, where Temple uh, is joined together at the hip with the developers uh, uh, in the block of my church. Uh, There is a home being built. Say the block, please. Yes, it's the uh, 1300 block of North 19th Street. We have a developer there that's going to further create uh, parking issues. I've gotten calls from members uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning about students uh, out on the uh, decks uh, having parties. So it is a problem that that has not been controlled and solved as yet. So So it sounds like the residents, a lot of people part of this No Deal Coalition, um, feel that because none of the, some of the problems that have been raised previously, that they don't trust that any of the issues that would be caused by a stadium will be dealt with. Because, yes, and, and a number of other things that Tampa has promised to the community has not been resolved. Respond to that, Valerie. I mean, how, how, do, how, are, the, how are residents supposed to trust Temple University when they've been raising all these issues and they feel like nothing has been dealt with? You know, many residents will tell you that there has been some improvement in terms of the level of partying activity, and we've been working on that. Again, there is a police presence that is greater there. There, um, the liquor control enforcement presence is greater. I mean, but there is a lot of work to do. We have a disciplinary process that has has really been beefed up in order to respond to that, and we'll continue to do the work around that. We are right in the middle right now of doing a workforce development initiative. Um, And what we're looking at is not just job training. We do job training now, but connecting folks to specific jobs after they've been trained and and Temple being at the forefront of being the employer in that case. So we are doing things like that. We are in Duckery School doing work and trying to do more work. And so all of this, um, like the Leah Chorus Center, would be subject to a specific agreement um, between the community members and the university. Yeah. Um, and, and and that is what our goal is, to have a robust conversation like this yeah. um, and, and to seriously consider and take this into account in reaching some sort of formal agreement um, around 
the types of jobs, the, yeah. the retail opportunities, all of that, all that would be memorialized. And Judith, I know you were there when the Leah Cora Center uh, was built. You have some memory of some of the things that happened. And, and there was a, there's been a number of changes of administration. What do you have to say about this? Well, I, I'm very concerned, and I hope uh, that we can get a better team at the negotiating table because we had a lot of uncertainties even after the deal was struck. There was concern about how much money for the community was agreed upon, mm-hmm. uh, where those resources were when the community needed them. Um, I just heard something recently that some of those funds were even returned back to Temple. Mm-hmm. I was taken aback by that. Whatever the deal was, I would like to see that the future deals are in writing. Mm-hmm. The community is because there are so many changes absolutely. In, in, in leaders. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is documented somewhere in a public venue so that all are aware of what exactly is being negotiated. I, I, I think totally that's agree. so important. You know, you have people yeah. with a leadership, so-called, go behind doors and negotiate something for the, quote, community. And the community isn't aware of what is being negotiated. And you have many factions wanting to be at the table to negotiate with Temple. And they're doing their own little deals. Why do you think, Reverend Moore, that this has come to a head in such a, I guess, a tangible, palpable way, like where you can feel it and see it and hear it? We were very disturbed that the president said that uh, the meeting was just a few, uh, uh, just a small group of um, organized protesters. And it's not because the Coalition includes not only the stadium stompers and some of the residents, but it also includes the NAACP and includes black clergy of Philadelphia and vicinity. Some 19 pastors, both black and white in North Central Philadelphia that I've talked to, the National Action Network, the Falconer Senate that voted 24 to 1. So you got a um, whole bunch of people. As well as the students. And the students, uh, 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 Valerie, I think, are doing a much better job in understanding uh, the community because we've talked to a lot of students who are recent graduates of Temple University uh, who say that I want to live here. But um, b- because of my income, I'm not going to be able to live here. But I want to live in North Philadelphia. I love North Philadelphia. So that we need to to get this together. But I think that the meeting uh, the other night really represented, uh, I think, a boiling point uh, of of the fact that people's voices had not been heard and had not been respected. Yes, they did talk to people, but you cannot cherry pick and talk to people. You do have to have uh, a community meeting. And we did have one on March the 1st. It was a very civil meeting. Uh, we invited the president, the chair of the board, uh, as well as our council person. Neither one uh, wanted to show up. It was not a hostile meeting. And we had made an agreement that if they did come, they would be heard. They would be respected. That was what we had. And and what else can we do? But after yet, that, and then the other meeting, they get shouted down. So now it's like a distrust. Well, no, I, you, sure, I, sure, you, I think we're going agree? to continue to work and we're committed we're to continue that. to work to get the right number of people. We have to go block by block. I mean, we'll get the right number block of people and the right forum um, because I think that is important that, that it is informed by those most um, impacted by it and that what is in their best interest needs to be communicated. And so we're committed to that. So to respond to Judah's point, I think the Leah Chorus Center, there were a lot of learnings from that. You are exactly right, that we learned a lot of things from that. We learned that we need to do to memorialize um, the details in a way 
um, that that is more inclusive and that that is in a more public way and that we need to include more people in those discussions. And we're committed to doing things differently. There are many wonderful things about the Leah Cora Center. There are activities and communities and we we go to parties and events and, and, and shows and that kind of thing there for the community. There are many wonderful things about it. Um, but I think you're right. I think that we've learned a lot from that process. And so we don't have to sort of um, repeat the same mistakes. And you wanted to comment. Go yeah, ahead. I just want to mention about this coalition. We are the 32nd Ward RCO. And our boundaries, this proposed stadium, are right smack in the middle of it. And we want to make sure that we are not overshadowed by this coalition. Because sometimes the community concerns can get lost in such a large coalition. You're talking about wage fights and uh, student fights, and you have teacher fights. Students are some of the major problems that we're concerned about. So to sit in a room negotiating with students when they should be negotiating based on that task force that was convened back in 2012 on student behavior, I would really like to see the students work with you all in working on that. Mm -hmm. The homeowners, I cannot as a homeowner negotiate for my community with uh, folks who do not have the same stakes and concerns. So the coalition is great. I understand their concerns. But when it comes back to it, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. it has to be the people most affected. The people most affected should not be overshadowed. I did not see one person who was most affected on that stage when you all had your stadium stompers reading. And that concerned me in that the people on Norris Street, who will be impacted, who are now impacted by traffic, noise, trash, et cetera, will be more so impacted. So I want to make sure that those folks are not overshadowed. Because there we were, there were uh, a number of leaders like Power on the stage. Right. There were people from the Guardian civically. They, those, those folks don't necessarily live on that block and wouldn't have to deal with that particular thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that part of it is, what do you say in response to that? Well, yes, and uh, I, I would, you know, hope that uh, Judith is not being dismissive of uh, the people that represent certainly the larger portion of the uh, problem. No one disinvited the um, Judith. She was welcome to come. Uh, I, I'm not I'd the say, most affected. I'm not. Well, that, that's okay, but but that, that's fine. But I think that the problem is much bigger mm-hmm. than noise and trash. It is really about an African-American community that is being displaced. If you look in Philadelphia, even going back to the Great Migration uh, on South Street, uh, when uh, African-Americans came uh, from the South, settled on South Street. They thought they wouldn't have it. They had made it. But you look at South Street now. We can, and, and I mean, that is very true. I mean, and, and the, the displacement issue, the gentrification issue, sometimes, many times caused by university uh, spread and sprawl. I mean, they're dealing with the same thing at Drexel. There's been pushback over there. UPenn had, had this very same issue. Any response to the feeling that, and a lot of this that's happening has to do with the race of the individual's and the income level of the individuals living in this community. So I think we, we said earlier, um, and I hope that, that we've made this clear, this is not about acquiring additional homes. This is not gentrification. This is building a stadium um, in a multi-purpose facility on land that is already used and owned by Temple. This is not expanding in terms of that. So I just wanted to make mm-hmm. sure but that— But it does have an impact. Well, it does have an impact. But, but this is development in a different way because this is development that engages the community in the discussions. Again, we need to have a broader discussion. We started with a small group of those most impacted, but it's clear. We have heard that we need to, to broaden that discussion. 
but it includes a discussion of what is in their best interest and, and how they see it. They inform the vision. They inform the development. So we think the most important thing is this, this conversation has to continue. And it has to continue in a way, again, that the most affected people do not lose agency, that they are heard and that they can receive information. All of us are impacted, to, uh, Valerie, because if, you go, if you're going to get $140 million in bonds, that's going to impact the taxpayers. That money has to be paid back. To say that it's just going to impact people in the three-block area is a ludicrous argument. Uh, all of us are impacted. I think what Temper has not heard is we do not want a stadium. I don't care whether, whether you call it a multiple center. I don't care what you call it. We do not want a stadium uh, in that block. It does not fit. There are residents there. There are people there who want to stay there. And even some of the people who make the decision, and I'm, I'm really disturbed that the decision is made by people who do not live in the community and who stand most to be uh, benefited from it, the lawyers and others, from the decisions are made. And the two, you two ladies ought to be disturbed that there is, there is not a female of any color on the executive committee of the trustee board who made the decision. And if you have seven, eight, nine white men making decisions for our people, that is unacceptable. What I've heard from person after person, we do not want that stadium in that block, even though it's in your footprint. Your footprint is on our neck. And that's what Temple is not understanding. $140 million, even if you paid the link $2 million a year, you would go, it would take you a long time to go through $140 million. Council President Daryl Clark came out this week and he said that he would not support it unless the residents, unless the community said they supported it. Is it, is it pretty much tabled right now? Until I don't think Temple? the community has had, a, a, the broader community has had a meaningful opportunity to to weigh in and to participate in receiving information and giving information. And that's the process that we, we want to do. So in the same way that Reverend Moore has heard people who are opposed, we've heard people who are for it um, and, and for various reasons. And so so we want that so to be a fully— So you've heard people in the neighborhood who will be affected yes. who are for the stadium. And they want to participate in the process of, of, in, of, of, of the plan going forward. They want to participate in that process. They want to participate in, in what the retail opportunities look like. Are they meaningful? They want to participate in whatever community. So the stadium issue is together. still alive. I think the issue of still talking to the community and giving them an effective opportunity um, to be to speak for themselves, to to be heard and to receive information um, and to be fully informed. So we're committed to that. So you committed to move to at least keeping the conversation Station going. Open. Absolutely. If you're going to have. A productive conversation. You have to have the people who want it and people who don't want it. You cannot have stealth people who would not come out of the closet and say where they stand. We've made our position quite clear. We do not want the stadium. Now, when you talk about African-American people who have businesses, can you put your finger on people who say, yes, if it is built, I'm prepared to put up the capital to move in there? You know, I mean, those are the kinds of conversations you want to have. We absolutely if need you're to gonna, have those. If you're going to move, uh, if you're going to move forward, but the bottom line is the overriding number of people that I've talked to, and I travel in a whole lot of different mm-hmm. circles, and do not want it because they see this as symptomatic of what is happening with Drexel and Mantua, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and all over this country. But but we cannot deny agency to people who live there. We have to hear from them. It is unfair not to share information or allow. Um, those persons, again, those who are most directly impacted, not to speak on this issue. And we want to give them that opportunity. I really am looking forward to that because we have not seen the traffic study. 
And if we were able to look at details of how would you manage uh, deliveries? Uh, how would you manage shutting down th- 15th Street? You know, where would the traffic go? And, and so, so that and so that is a big issue. There is a traffic study and the engineers have, have finished the traffic study, has not been publicly shared yet, but it will be. And then that so is why something do you I think can... it's taken Temple so long. I mean, 17 months is a long time to be negotiating this and to not have quelled this this issue. This is a complicated um, issue. Um, it is not a simple issue. Um, there are engineering studies that it, it, it just maybe just looks easier, but it, but it's hard because you're trying to bring together a, a diverse and, a, as you see now, a large group of people with differing views. And you're trying to allow each constituent group to be able to hear and to be heard. And that is not necessarily an easy thing that you can do overnight, but we're committed to that process. I think, again, there were some learnings, some key learnings from the Leah Cora Center, mm. which means that we need to include more people. We started with a small group that has been invaluable in mm. informing the process, and now we're going to broaden that. And so, Well, and because this is Flashpoint, we only have a certain amount of time, mm. but as we wrap up this discussion, I want to give each of you 15 seconds to kind of summarize, where do you see this going? What are the next steps and hopefully building some kind of a bridge, whether it includes a stadium or not. How do you build a bridge with Temple and the community after all of this? I'm certainly open to conversation, but I think what Temple has not heard is an overriding number of people do not want the stadium, and they continue to push the stadium down uh, our throats. The conversation is too about two years too late. And Judith, what do you say? I would like to see Temple build relationships ongoing because they really need to. It's unfortunate that they haven't over all these years. And I really wish that Temple would move forward with possibly Mm -hmm. the special services district. We work on some of those issues. And then maybe we can revisit the multi-purposes center. And and final word. On the front end, we want to invest in Duckery. On the back end, we want to give scholarships. We believe that this has sparked a conversation that allows us, with the stadium is there or not, to do some things in North Philadelphia that benefit that entire community. We want to keep the conversation going. We want to make sure that people have agency and that they are heard and that they receive the information that they need. Well, I want to say thank you uh, to... Uh, Reverend Bill Moore, thank you to Valerie Harrison and thank you to Judith Robinson for coming in and talking about this flashpoint in the news. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. Next up, a father-son comedy team whose one-minute sketches have gone viral. At the end of the day, I want my son to have a future, you know, to be good. I'll tell you two ways their unconventional act is changing perceptions. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker for this week is a Philadelphia-based father-son duo whose one-minute video comedy sketches have garnered hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. We have Eric Lawton and his eight-year-old son, Sean. They're known as Gee Funny on Instagram, Facebook, and now YouTube. Take a listen. Did you used to mess with my mom? What? Did you used to mess with my mom? How do you think you got here, Sean? I know you my dad, but you my man, too. And as my man, you shouldn't be messing with my mom. The videos get lots of laughs and sometimes criticism as they gear up to launch a full 25-minute comedy series online. Eric and Sean, welcome to the KYW Studios and to Flashpoint. Hey, how you doing out there? Yeah. Hi. 
Thank y'all for coming in. I'm so excited to meet y'all. Thanks for having us. Um, when I read the article about you all last month, I immediately watched the videos and I became a follower. And y'all cracked me up. Oh, yeah. That's what we try to do. Yes. <laughs> so, Eric, explain to people who probably never heard and never seen what your concept is. Uh, genuinely, it's just to show a relationship between, you know, a father and a son. Uh, behind closed doors, usually kind of questions that you know young kids or young sons ask their dads, or or, or and you know the, the kind of answer we might give them, you know that no when nobody's watching, you know I just put it on full blast. That's all. Sean, you ask questions. Yes. Tell me some of the questions you ask. Um, where do babies come from? That's one of them. That's a tough <laughs> question that parents their, yeah. their stomachs start bubbling when they hear that question, especially when you're seven asking. And so you you ask these questions. Where do the ideas for the sketches come from? General conversations. Like we have a conversation in the crib, like, or we're playing in the house, and he asked me something. Then I think to myself, like, wow, like, how is he seven years old asking them kind of questions? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or or thinking like that. And I and we just put it on the front of the, in front of everybody, but we just take it to a, a higher level. Sean, you don't get. You seem like you're not pretty. You're not nervous at all. And I'm I, not. What do you want to do? I want to be an actor. Mm-hmm. And this is like, what is this, like practice for you? Sometimes practice and sometimes we'll do real videos. Yeah. No, it is real videos. It is real videos. But it's like, you. it's kind of building up to something, it seems like. Well, basically it's like... Uh when you know when I when I uh, start pushing the show into different things, mm. like I, I pushed him to basketball, he wasn't really feeling that. You ain't like basketball. Uh, I pushed him to I pushed him to football and stuff like that. He wasn't really feeling that. So I'm, don't you know how a father you know want their kid to do something, and, and especially if you was into sports, you're like, oh my son gonna do this when he. So we was at a party one time, and Sean was just like entertaining the kids with fake magic tricks and stuff like that. And I'm like, this kid just like to be seen. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I, once I, once I, I just said, I'm going to put him in front of the camera and see how he do. And took off. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, I was already doing my comedy thing. Everybody knew me as being funny, but once I put him on, yeah, that was it. That was it. And so mm-hmm. now how do you like being in front of the camera, Sean? Tell me about that. I like being in front of the camera because I'm starting to get famous <laughs> and I'm starting to get money now. Oh, really? Yes. Well, can I have some of it? What money are you getting? Um, money from people. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah they, don't, they don't give me money. I saw, I saw, <laughs> on, I saw there was a sketch or photo you took of you getting tax refunds and uh, from the kids, yeah, and not giving buying anything for the kids. No, which it was, I thought it was, was funny. <laughs> it was basically a picture saying, um, you know, people claim their kids and then they go they go shopping for it. I mean, I, I'm not knocking people like you. You take care of your kids all year. You can do what you want with your money. But you got you got bags, bags on top of bags, and he looking like what? <laughs> so that was really funny. Um, yeah. But you you now you you are saying all kinds of stuff, and some people have criticized you because some of the commentary, including your catchphrase. Please say your catchphrase, and I will bleep it out. Do it look like I give a fuck? Because yeah. I don't. <laughs> that is your catchphrase. Yes. Our comedy is how people parent it mm-hmm. <laughs> behind doors. So now I'm doing it in front of the camera. Everybody, like, oh, my God, don't say that. Don't do this. Man, it's, it's done all the time everywhere. I work for, I work with youth. So mm-hmm. I see how I see how parents deal when you tell parents, you know, your son was acting up today. And they get right with them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of my comedy comes from real life. People talk to their kids that in that manner. I don't talk to him like that per se in actual reality. But, you know, I just put how I feel like parenting, especially urban parenting is. When I first started, it was a lot of, 
you know, more than do it look like I give a fuck. And, th- and then it went to, but I cut it all out and we, we started expanding even more. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Now it's just my catchphrase that you hear in the video. You won't hear me cursing other than that. Yeah. But the only reason I kept the catchphrase because people loved it so much. Tell me the best part about working with your dad and the toughest part about working with your dad. The tough part is my lines because sometimes I'll mess up and then it'll take us like, like sometimes I get frustrated, sometimes I get better, but sometimes he mess up and sometimes I mess up. So you like dad, it wasn't all me. Oh, he let you know when it's you. <laughs> yeah, he loved to do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, look, man, like I'm I'm ready. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and so you you did get some little criticism, but it wasn't bad. And what did you do with that? I felt like it was good criticism. Because yeah. the when I first started, the whole the first video we got that blew when when the uh my son said he seen naked pictures in my phone, that video blew up. Like, I mean, everybody, all type of celebrities posted everything. But the whole video, curse this, curse that, profanity this, profanity that. And I was getting, damn, man, this is so good, man. This is so good. But, you know, if you turn uh, the cursing down a little bit, maybe you'll blow. You know what I'm saying? So I took it as good criticism. So that my next five or six videos street, I came with just do it look like I give a, you know what I'm saying? And it cut the rest of it out, uh, the rest of the cursing out. I was like, I can do this without cursing. This is easy. But I want to talk about father-son relationships okay. because – Y'all African-American father <laughs> with African-American son. Yeah. What do you think this says about fatherhood, specifically when you talk about black males? Actually, I hope it's sending the message that there's all types of ways you can spend time with your kids. You know, it, it don't have to be, it don't have to always be surrounded around money. I use this to, to spend time with my kids just as much as anything. I'm hoping it's sending the message to the, the fathers that uh, your kids can do anything and you should support them. Like, I seen that my son wanted to be an entertainer. He liked to entertain people. He liked to be in front of a crowd. So I pushed that. Everything I do, this whole gee funny thing, is for him, to, to showcase him. And if I get drugged along, okay. But at the, at the end of the day, I want my son to have something to fall back on, a future, you know, to be good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. And, and you're funny. I mean, I'm just going to yeah. put that out there. Thank you. And so what's your vision? I know you got this new series that you're launching this week. Yeah. Explain the series for me and why you decided, you know, you're going from one minute now to 25 minutes. Tell me about it. The series is called Father Duties. And uh, it's just basically to show that a day-to-day being a single parent, the show is going to basically show, you know, me trying to raise my son <laughs> and uh, through bullying, through peer pressure, through, you know, me trying to live my own life while he always around. Father Duties will be an extended version of uh, your videos, or it's just now it's actually like a sitcom. It's, 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 a, it's definitely an extended version. We got a more of an avenue now. We got more of lanes, like switching scenes and more of a story to tell in them. Instead of you getting a quick version of it, you got to actually see it play out. And now you've built up an audience for your YouTube channel. And so do, before you was doing what, iPhone videos? What were you uh, doing? Doing on my phone, yeah. And now you're doing it with cameras and Yeah, I got a cameraman named JTech. Dream big for me. What's your vision? For one day that me and him just have our own show that that's on national TV every week. I'm talking ABC, I'm talking CBS, I'm talking you know NBC, anybody. And if not for me and him, for him, I'm, we gonna push the envelope. I, I don't want us to stop at the Instagram famous yeah. he funny. I want us to be he funny the fa- the actor he, or Sean the actor. And so Sean, how you feel about that vision? Good. You ready for this? Yes. And so I just want to say, you know, congratulations. Thank you. On, you know, just being a representative, mm-hmm. you know, of Philly. So where can people find y'all and check out these videos? Because I'm really not doing them justice on how funny these one-minute videos are. And I want to make sure that people check you out on the new YouTube channel to see the full um, episodes. The new YouTube channel is called The Real Gee Funny. 
They, they, they're just as good as the one minute, but they drone out. You get to see everything. You can find us at Gee Funny on Instagram. You can find us at Gee Funny fan page on Facebook. All right. And Gee is spelled G-H-E-E. Funny. So thank you so much to Eric Lawton, to Sean. Happy birthday thank to you. you. And thank you so much for coming into the KYW studios and talking about fl- and being on Flashpoint. Thank you. Next up, they found a way to help increase the health of Philadelphia mothers and their babies. Women weren't getting medical care. They weren't getting to prenatal care. Three ways a local nonprofit is taking infant mortality. Head on. is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and this week, it's all about birthing babies and allowing them to thrive. Maternity Care Coalition is an organization working to improve the health of mothers and their babies in communities in southeastern Pennsylvania, and since 1980, the organization has assisted more than 100,000 families. With me in the studio to discuss their ongoing effort is Karen Pollock, VP of Programs, and Marianne Frey, Vice President of External Affairs for MCC. Welcome to the KYW Studios and to Flashpoint. Thank Thank you, you. Sherry. What was the problem that sparked the creation of MCC? There were communities in Philadelphia where there were infant mortality rates that were comparable to developing countries. And infant mortality is when a baby dies between the first month of its life up to one year. And there were a group of individuals who were concerned about infant mortality in Philadelphia, and they came together and they formed a coalition. And they started off by doing advocacy, by going to City Hall and talking with legislators, by trying to get the the health department and the medical community to pay attention to what the concerns were and why women were having babies that ended up dying in their first year. Yeah, and what did you guys find? Why were babies dying? Well, what we found initially was that women were not connected to resources in their community. And so women weren't getting medical care. They weren't getting to prenatal care. Uh, Babies weren't going to the doctor. Babies were sleeping in conditions that were not safe. Mothers were overwhelmed and stressed. And housing situations were not conducive to growth and development for children. And so our work was really to go to the communities where pregnant women were and engage them in services, connect them to resources, do lots of health education so that we can deal with this infant mortality rate. Now, I read that there is a lot of good news. The number of babies surviving has grown and the number of babies dying has decreased significantly. And especially in communities of color, we're seeing that same trend. But there are still significant disparities. Mm -hmm. So white women tend to do much better in all of these maternal child health outcomes than women of color. Hispanic women, African-American women, Native American women. And so what we need to do is work in our community to make sure that everybody has access to the same kinds of services. And one of the things you mentioned, Marianne, is that there is a mobile. Explain what that is. So mobile are essentially vehicles that are transporting what we call advocates who are home health aides. And they are going in and providing this education. The things that Karen was talking about, we are on site. And what do you think some of the big misconceptions that people just have no idea about? People don't know that even today in 2018, mothers die 
during labor and delivery. When we think of that happening, we think of developing countries. And even in the United States, we're actually seeing an increase in the number of mothers who are dying during labor and delivery. And the reason is because uh, women are coming to pregnancy and they're not as healthy as they once were. And so women are coming and they have all kinds of pre-existing health conditions and they have stress in their lives and they experience violence in their communities and domestic violence in their homes. I think the other thing that people don't always remember is that babies continue to die from sleeping in unsafe sleep environments. And we have been doing a safe sleep campaign. We have a website that is pasafesleep.org. If you go on that website, you can find information about how to create a safe sleep environment for your child. We also run a program called Cribs for Kids, where if a family is unable to afford a crib, we are able to provide that along with education on how to create a safe sleep environment for children. Can you just give me the laundry laundry list of some of the programs that MCC has that people may not have heard of that are sort of like helping with these healthy outcomes? We're actually the largest provider of early Head Start services in Philadelphia. We have a, the Mommobile program that we spoke about earlier and Healthy Start. Uh, we also have a program in the Riverside Correctional Center where we actually are providing the home visiting services that we do in the community at the Correctional Center, the North uh, Philadelphia Breastfeeding and Doula Program, as well as the Parenting Collaborative. We are also really focused on not just the health and well-being, but also early childhood education. Mm -hmm. And so we really want to see, we're very involved in a lot of the efforts across the city around school readiness and making sure that kids are ready to learn when they enter um, kindergarten. And so this is a whole, this is a holistic approach to helping mothers, to helping families, to helping babies Absolutely. and young children. So where can people find you all? On the web, maternitycarecoalition.org and on Facebook and Instagram, Maternity Care Coalition and on Twitter at MCC Home. To Karen Pollock and to Marianne Frey for coming into the KYW studios and talking about this flashpoint in the news. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. And we'll walk you through the flames. As well as Coach Donna Martini recently tweeted, Compromise is not about losing. It is about deciding that the other person has just as much right to be happy with the end result as you do. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.